You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. There is no greater literature, no greater storytelling out there than our Bibles. Nothing published today. I don't care how much you love Harry Potter or whatever, the Wings of Fire, it's all, it's all good, but nothing beats our scriptures. And it was hard this week putting, figuring out what to say because, y'all, we could spend weeks, go, we won't, but we could spend weeks going through just the, the flow, the structure, each word, how God puts it together to give us one profound but simple message. But the, the first thing that stands out in chapter 2 is that it doesn't belong. It's out of place. It doesn't make a lot of sense there. Look at your Bibles. You can go read. You can read the end of chapter 1. And the the chapter 1 is God is giving them the land. And then you can just skip over chapter 2, pick it up, verse 1 of chapter 3, and chapter 3 is them entering the land with the big miracle. You know, He parts the Jordan River. It's like the the Red Sea 2.0. And it reads perfectly logically. It makes sense. But that's not what we get. We get this... We get this interruption of chapter 2 in, in between. And so our first experience in the promised land, it's not a big miracle uh, water parting. It doesn't begin with Joshua, you know, the new great leader. It doesn't even begin with an Israelite. Our first experience in the promised land begins in sin. It, it begins in the dregs of society. It it begins with damaged goods. Not with a hero, not with uh, even an Israelite, but with someone that even the violent, depraved Canaanites would say that we, they have no respect for. Someone the Israelites would have said, that person is as far from God as you can possibly get. The promised land begins with a shady lady named Rahab. Isn't that amazing? We're told she lives in between the walls. Now, Jericho's walls are famous, you know. Uh, we all learned about them in vacation Bible school. And I sure draw, draw all kind of colored pictures and cutouts and the whole thing. But it, it wasn't just one big wall. It was actually two walls. And there's a little space in between the two walls. And they would throw their trash and the rubbish. And, and then the poorest of the poor would kind of build a little house in between those two walls. And that's where she lived. So I've always heard first impressions are important, and they are. So if first impressions are important, why are we we starting here? Here's why. Because Joshua is not chiefly about the conquest of land. It is about the conquest of hearts. There's a reason we call it a conquest. So Joshua has to lead the people in. They have to conquer the land because there's already somebody living in the land. There's inhabitants. If there weren't already somebody there, it it wouldn't be conquering. It would just be walking. You just walk into the land. And remember, we said there's a purpose to the promised land. So the real promise of the promised land is a place for God and man to dwell together. We see that throughout the scriptures, beginning with the Garden of Eden. It will end in a new heaven and a new earth. But did you know the Israelites, they never inhabit the boundaries that God gives them in the book of Joshua. They they never inhabit all the land, not even close. And then the part they do inhabit, they cannot keep. Why? Why? Because their hearts, like the land, are already inhabited by something else. 
They are already inhabited by sin and pride, living in the hearts that were intended for God. And so they may get rid of the Canaanites, but they never get rid of the strongholds of sin and pride. They never get off this endless cycle of sin and judgment. And then I promise we'll do better. We'll try harder. And then repeat, repeat, repeat. And so right from the beginning, guys, before the battles and the conquering and and, and the heroes and walls tumbling down, the author provides us with an interruption for the same reason that you interrupt someone, because I've got something important and urgent to say, and it's this. There is only one thing, there is only one way to conquer a human heart. There's only one way to kick out sin and pride and replace it with God. Grace. Grace. That's our big idea today. Only grace can conquer your heart. Only grace can conquer your heart. Let's begin reading Joshua chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered the house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the, the chapter starts as a spy thriller. And, and, and there's kind of some humor there. I mean, you may remember Joshua himself was a spy 40 years ago. He was sent out to spy the land, not with two, but with 12 spies. Well, only two of them reported back with faith. The other 10 were worthless. So it's like he's saying, guys, we don't need 12. 10 of those, there's no point to them. We only need two. So we're sending two. So they send out the two. And then we find out they're the worst spies ever, y'all. We get all the way to verse 2, and the king knows they're there. This is impressively bad. You know what I thought about this week? Has anyone ever seen that Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd movie, Spies Like Us? My dad showed me that movie when I was a kid. I mean, it's Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, so you can imagine. I mean, this is the level of spycraft we're working with here. <laughs> Thankfully, Rahab, they meet Rahab, and she tells the king, they went over there. Meanwhile, she's got them hiding up on the roof. It says she hides them in the stalks of flax on the roof. Now, the flax was very important in the ancient Near East. They used it for just about everything. They used it to make oil. They used it for food. They used it for to make clothes and, and linens, and they would harvest it, and they'd put it on the roofs to dry it out. So these men are either crouching behind like bound together stalks of flax or they're like laying down and she's like swept them over and and covered them. This is a very precarious hiding spot. And the spies in Rahab herself have put themselves in grave danger. If the spies are found, they will be, be killed and probably very brutally killed. And so as we're reading this, we're we're supposed to be on the edge of our seats. We're supposed to be saying, wait a minute, what's going to happen? These spies aren't very good. This is a bad hiding spot. They, they could be killed. They, they can't hide there forever. Will they be found? How will they ever make it out? How will they ever escape? And just when we're on the edge of our seats, the writer stops. And we're not going to revisit these spies again until 
Verse 15. He, he pauses the spy thriller and he gives us an interruption. In between the spy thriller, spy thriller, he brings Rahab to the center of the stage. He cuts the house lights. He puts the spotlight on her and he says, Rahab, the stage is yours. And she speaks. It's as if the author's telling us, don't worry about the spies. This isn't a Matt Damon movie. That's not why we're really here. What we are really here for is something so far more important that you need to hear. And so Rahab speaks, starting in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and, my, and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we... Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And so now with us on the edge of our seats in a place that we never thought we would be, God shows us a heart conquered by grace. I want us to notice several things in her confession. First, she identifies God specifically. She says, Yahweh, that, that is God's covenant name, his personal marriage name as he revealed to Moses. She uses it four times in seven verses. And so this is no vague higher power talk. This is not God as I understand him. She's saying that guy, him, the one that talked to Moses, he is God. He is singular. He's not one amongst many. He is the only God. He has no rival. He has no equal. Second thing she does is she believes his revelation. So we see that she believes what God has said about himself. You know, almost everything she says doesn't come from her. Almost everything she says are God's words repeated back to him. This is amazing. Remember, Rahab didn't grow up in Sunday school. She didn't have VBS like we do. She grew up in the most foul paganism you can imagine. But she isn't referencing some conception of God from her parents or the, the culture around her. She believes that God is exactly who he says that he is. And so verse 11, when she says, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, that is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 4.39. These were the words that Israel was supposed to be confessing about God. But here's a pagan Canaanite harlot with God's self-revelation on her lips. She repeats this phrase over and over. You're almost like, get a thesaurus, Rahab. She repeats this, deal kindly, over and over. She'll say it three times in three verses. That word is hesed. Hesed. It's one of the most important words in your Bible. It is the faithful covenant love of God. 
God, over and over, he reveals himself as one who shows kindness to a thousand generations. That word shows kindness, that's hesed. Countless times in your Old Testament, you will see God self-reveal himself as one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That word steadfast love, that is his hesed. So, somehow, this hesed of God, somehow it's flowing, it's spewing out of the lips of someone who should be the farthest from God. We're supposed to be stunned. Against all odds, against all expectations, this heart has been conquered by something greater than sin and death, something greater than what she was raised in. And somehow the words of God, they've moved from tablets of stone and they're coming out of the heart of a harlot. She believes what God has said about himself. Secondly, she believes what God has done. She said, we've heard, we've heard what he's done. Now this is amazing. She doesn't have a whole lot of information. She has far less information than all the Israelites. She, she knew that this God had done things that her gods couldn't do. She knew a couple kings were dead. She knew the Red Sea was opened up and parted. And she decides based on that, I am going to believe in that God. I'm going to put on the uniform of that God's team. I'm switching allegiances to that God. And others, others had the same information they, they, that she had, and they even had an emotional reaction. Y'all, she said, like, the whole city is having to change their pants after they found out the Israelites were on the doorstep. They're scared. Their hearts are melting away. They, they're having an emotional reaction. They believe what God's about to do. So what's the difference in Rahab and everyone else? Faith. Faith is the only difference. The historical reality of what God has done generates within her the type of faith that makes her willing to risk her life. She bets her whole future on joining up with this God. You know, many times, many, many people demand more and more signs from God. God, show me a sign. God, if we just do this, then I'll know. I'll know it's real. But God has already chosen to reveal himself by acting irrefutably in time and in history according to his will, according to his timing. And he says over and over again, if you won't believe in what I have already done, listen, more magic tricks is not going to fix it. Let me give you a couple examples. So creation. Creation, listen, I, I wasn't there. God didn't do this all at my beck and call. I can't understand it, but yet I can see it. And it, it's supposed to... I'm supposed to know that that, that has an effect on me. And I, I'm, it's supposed to stir my mind and my heart and draw me towards him. Here's the ultimate example. The resurrection. The Bible stakes its reputation and provides ample evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And it says that resurrection, it serves as the proof. The proof that there is something more powerful than sin and death out there. That Jesus is the better Joshua who more than conquer land, his grace can conquer our hearts. And so no further proof is needed. Just like Rahab, you have all heard what God did by raising Jesus from the dead. And so the question is, will you put your faith in it? See, Rahab, go read Romans 10 this week. It's amazing. 
Rahab is the living embodiment of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. She has heard about what this God has done. She has heard his word and she has put her faith in what she has heard. And now she's confessing with her mouth and believing in her heart that he is God. That's Romans 10, 9. So faith, you see, it grows out of hearing what God has done and then realizing that means something for me. I need to pledge my allegiance to him based on what I have heard about him. And through that faith, she is conquered by grace. Verse 12 and 13. This is amazing to me. She she fears God, but she isn't afraid. Do you see that? I mean, she has this healthy respect for God, but she's not shaking in her boots. Instead, she takes refuge in God. And she does that because she realizes her heart is already inhabited by sin and death. Do you see it? You see it in verse 12 and 13? Look at what she asked for. She asked that they would be, they would be saved alive. Now that, that's an odd phrase. Save alive? Why don't you just say, save us? I, I am alive, so save me. But we translated two words. It's actually one word. It can mean revive. It can mean resuscitate. It can mean resurrect. It can mean bring back to life. And you say, what, Rahab? You're, you're already alive. You don't. She'd say, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm dead. And so she prays, deliver us from death. Death is what's coming for me. She's saying, I'm li- I am the living dead. You seen that movie, The Sixth Sense? You know, the cute kids, like, I see dead people. <laughs> well, the, the, the big reveal at the end of the movie, so spoiler alert, but, I mean, it, it's been like 30 years, so if you haven't seen it now, you, you had your chance. The big reveal at the end of the movie is the main character, Bruce Willis, he's been dead the whole time. He died at the very beginning of the movie, and only this little kid, he was the only one that realized he was already dead. That's Rahab. She is the only one that realizes we are already dead. And notice, she's not screaming, that's not fair. She, she, she knows that death and judgment is what they deserve. She understands that sin and death moved into their hearts a long time ago. And unless something greater can conquer their hearts and kick them out, we stand condemned. You know, often we think of grace as kind of like a lottery ticket, you know. All of us, we're, we're all trying to do our best, and we're all doing pretty good. And then a few of us get lucky. A few of us win the lottery. God lets a few people win the lottery. Stinks for everyone else, you know. <laughs> Rehab realizes grace is so much more than that. Grace is bringing the dead back to life. Grace is a refuge in God from deserved judgment. Grace is a stay of execution when you're guilty. Grace, it's not just a matter of correct belief. It's a matter of desperate need. Lots of people out there, lots of people collect all kinds of information about God. You can do that. You can get to know everything about God, all the facts, all the memorize, all the stuff. And you can know a lot about God. That's nothing special. But the heart conquered by grace runs to take refuge under his wings because it realizes I'm already dead. You know what she finds? When Rahab runs to take refuge in grace, she finds an abundance she never expected. 
we find out she is adopted as a full member to the family of God. So chapter 6, we'll just have this note in chapter 6. It says, she dwells in Israel to this day. So she's not a refugee. She's not a second-class citizen. She goes from shady lady to daughter of the king like that. The book of James sets her up as an example of faith in action. She is someone we should all learn from. That's what grace did in this person. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, alongside people like Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses. She goes from voted least likely to succeed to hall of fame. That's what grace did in that person. My my favorite might be Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus himself. She's one of four women listed in Jesus' genealogy. Because after the walls of Jericho fall, Rahab's student going to marry a man named Salmon. They're going to have a kid named Boaz. Boaz is going to have a son named Obez. Obez is going to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse is going to have a son named King David. And then 24 generations later, Jesus himself will be born in the line of David, dating all the way back to Rahab. Do you see the power of grace? As long as sin and death reign in your heart, you are destined for destruction. But when grace conquers a heart, you are rescued and redeemed and used by God for his kingdom. It's quite a turnaround. But I found myself wondering this week, you know, how did she know? Like, how did she know she could take refuge in God? That that she would find grace instead of smiting or a lightning bolt or stamping her down. You know, how, how did she know that? Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Everything changes in verse 18. She hangs the scarlet cord out on her window as a sign. And, you know, there's multiple levels of meaning here, but let's start with this. Let's start with what she knew. What we know that she knew it would have meant to her. Remember, she, she'd heard about what happened in Egypt. She, she knew about this strange, unprecedented, unheard of grace in the Passover. About a time when death was coming, but scarlet blood over a doorpost would save the people in that house. And so now she understands That same grace is passing over me too. There's a scarlet cord that runs throughout your Bible from beginning to end. And it's one of those things that shows us, you know, the Bible is for you, but it's not about you. It's not even about Rahab. It's not even about Joshua or some spies. It is ultimately about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. That's what's going to happen many years from then on a Passover Jesus, the true Passover lamb, would shed his blood so that judgment could pass over you and me. Did you, did you notice the spies' response in verse 14? My life for yours, even to death. That's how grace conquers a heart. That's how Jesus responds when you take refuge in him. I'll take your death. My life for yours, even to death. You know, there's, a, there's another meaning in that scarlet cord that she would have known. In the ancient Near East, a, a scarlet cord above the door, it's essentially the business card for a prostitute. 
And so they, they would hang it outside the door so everyone would know this is a, a brothel. And so when the spies tell her this, I, I think Rahab's jaw had hit the floor and she, she's saying like, wait, wait, wait. You're telling me the greatest sign of my sin is now the sign of my deliverance? Yeah. Yes. Because when grace conquers your heart, listen, it changes everything. There's this thing that occurs throughout the Bible. It almost sounds insulting. So every time Rahab is mentioned repeatedly over and over again throughout the Bible, every time she retains the label harlot. Say, what? Why? Why can't we just pretend like that never happened? Why can't we just never mention that again? Because when grace conquers a heart, those labels, they are transformed from sources of shame to trophies of grace. You know, we all, we all have labels based on things we've done while sin reigns in our hearts. Some of those labels other people give us, some of those labels we give ourselves. Failure, cheater, not good enough, different, difficult, stupid. Listen, when, when grace reigns, when grace conquers, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. But neither do you have to sweep those under the rug and, and hide them. They can be trophies of his grace. They can tell the whole world, grace is the only thing that conquered this heart. See, the message of the Bible, men and women, is that we're all Rahab. The moral of the story is that no one gets there by morals. The only people who make it are the ones who heart, whose heart is conquered by grace. And this is what we see over and over again. Read your New Testament. You will never see somebody say, you know how I made it here? Because I'm awesome. I'm just great. I mean, I'm doing God a favor here. See, Paul's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. You will not find a worse sinner than me. We have Peter. Suffers from chronic foot and mouth disease. Full of guts and gusto. Until Jesus is at his greatest moment of need. And he denies ever knowing. I mean, all of a sudden he loses all of his courage. All these sinners, all these tax collectors. Remember Nicodemus, remember the woman at the well. Every example shows grace is the only thing that can conquer a human heart. Yet how quickly we can forget that, right? And we turn this whole thing into performing, into earning. I don't think I could say it any better than Dale Ralph Davis says it. He says this. We say the church is only for respectable, clean, middle-class folks. But that's like saying hospitals are only for doctors, nurses, and x-ray machines instead of for sick people. Or it's like saying that only morticians and coroners belong in morgues instead of dead people. Who then should be in the church but sinners? The church is not a club but a refuge for sinners who have been touched by the grace of God. The church is not a club, but a refuge for sinners who have been touched by the grace of God. He's saying there's only two types of people. Those are, there's those who remain dead in their sins and those whose hearts have been conquered by grace. That's the only two categories of people that exist. So, I want us to conclude this morning the same way we concluded our first sermon in the series. And we're going to repeat it throughout the series by answering the question, so what? So I'm going to ask Adam to come on up. He's going to play some mu music for a little bit. 
And I want you, each and every one of us, to think about and even write down if you can, what is something God is asking you to do or to remember from his word today? Think about walking out those doors. Think about your Tuesday, okay? How does this passage, how does the story of Rahab apply to you? Then write it down. Tell yourself. Type it in your phone. Whatever you have to do. Maybe for you the application is to believe. Maybe for the first time, you know, today, today, you can believe that it is true, that Jesus is God who became man, and he said, my life for yours. And after three days, Jesus rose him from the dead. You know, the best day of Rahab's life was the day she figured out she could not save herself, and it can be for you too. If that's you, hey, write it down and then come talk to us. You can come talk to me, any of our elders, anyone who's a Christian, you can go talk to and tell them. Maybe it's, maybe you need to remember his grace for your past. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. You can be a trophy of his grace. Maybe you need to remember his grace for your future. You're not earning it. Let grace kill that pride that wants to well up in you. Or maybe you need to find security in his grace. There's a way you need to remember you can take refuge. Maybe his grace needs to rearrange some decisions of yours. You know, Rahab, she... She was willing to lose it all for the God she believed in. I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm not willing to lose a couple hours in my week even. Whatever it is, take some time to do some business with God and find out what he's asking you to do. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.